Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. <laughs> I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome and thank you for joining me today. I just got off the Skype phone with Greg Smits to talk about not one, but two of his recent books. One is Seismic Japan, The Long History and Continuing Legacy of the Anse Edo Earthquake. This came out with the University of Hawaii Press in I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome and thank you for joining me today. I just got off the Skype phone with Greg Smits to talk about not one, but two of his recent books. One is Seismic Japan, The Long History and Continuing Legacy of the Anse Edo Earthquake. This came out with the University of Hawaii Press in 2013. And another book that came out with Roman and Littlefield just a year later in 2014, and that is When the Earth Roars, Lessons from the History of Earthquakes in Japan. Now, both of these books independently stand as really interesting, um, really well-researched, and really fascinating contributions to the history of Japan, both the early modern and modern history thereof, to the history of earthquakes, and to the history of science and technology, in addition to making lots of other really interesting contributions to other fields of history that you'll hear me talk about over the course of the next hour. But taken together, both of them also represent a kind of model of what it's possible for a historian to do when he brings his expertise in narrating and understanding and bringing together the documentary traces of the past to inform the current practice of science, technology, and engineering, and to also, um, in some cases, provide some really interesting and I think really useful suggestions for how to move forward into the future. And so it's, it's really, I think, fascinating and very laudable effort to try to use history to inform current practice, and especially in some cases where the outcomes of the events that he's talking about are so dramatic, both in terms of cost of human life and in terms of financial cost of a state or of an area and of a a political unit. So both books are really, really interesting, and you'll hear me um, and Greg over the course of the next hour talk about the ways that they inflect and are inflected with the histories of deities and religion, um, the ways that they inform a history of materials and materiality, especially um, in terms of sort of understanding the material bases for um, earthquakes and earthquake events. And they're also just really, really fascinating case studies that open up a whole whole range of sources of Japanese history and ways of understanding the imbrication of Japan within a larger transnational frame um, that I I think was just super, super fascinating. So I hope you have a chance to take a look at the books um, and I hope you enjoy the conversation to come. Thanks very much for listening.
I'm here today to talk with Gregory Smits about two of his recent books, Seismic Japan and When the Earth Roars. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Greg, and thanks very much for making time during the summer to talk with me today about two books that are great independently and that also work really, really well together. So thanks for being here. Oh, it's my pleasure, and thank you for your interest. Of course. So, Greg, could you say, um, or could you start us off by saying a little bit about how you came to work on the history of Japan? Okay, well, working on the history of Japan has been something I've done for a long time, uh, and uh, it, that's the, the result of a series of accidental things that happened when I was an undergraduate, but I'll spare you the whole <laughs> long story, but you know, it has to do with things like, well, let's see, Japanese language is offered at 10 a.m., Chinese at 8 a.m., all right, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> um, and in in graduate school, I, I actually worked on Confucianism and uh, in outside of China uh, in the early modern era. And I wrote uh, about, uh, and I'm, some people know me as a scholar of the Yuqiu Kingdom um, and or on other kinds of things. But what ties all the work that I've done uh, together is an interest in intellectual history, broadly defined. And so the, the importance of ideas and the interplay of ideas and things like that. And so... Uh, um, uh, in, I've sort of moved now into, uh, uh, especially for teaching purposes, I've become very much interested in the history of science, history of engineering, things like that, and and that uh, kind of goes along nicely with my uh, research interest in, in earthquakes. So, in fact, both of the books that we're talking about today deal in some way with the history of earthquakes and seismology in Japan. And both of them relate in really interesting ways and to different degrees. And we'll talk about that um, over the course of our conversation, I'm sure. The early modern to modernity and to really the right now and the future in one case. So yes. one, one takes a more synthetic approach and one focuses in on a particular quake and its consonants or its consequences and resonances. So can you say a little bit for us about how you came to work on this particular constellation of issues? What brought you to an interest and to two different books um, that really uh, kind of focus on this interest in earthquakes in particular? Yes. Well, this um, also is a case of act, initially of accidental circumstances. And uh, the story is really uh, almost bizarre, but I was uh, in Tokyo looking at going through uh, uh, bookstores, looking at used books. I see a very large uh, hardbound volume on Namazu, the catfish prints. And mm-hmm. I, I knew what those were, roughly. Uh, uh, and uh, I looked through the book and it, the illustrations looked really nice and it had been marked way down. So I bought it for that reason. Uh, cheap. And um, <laughs> it sat on the shelf for several years and I would look at it occasionally and say, I should read that sometime. Um, and finally, when I got around to reading it, uh, turns out the essays in it were very substantial. I thought, well, as long as I'm reading this, I should uh, take some notes and then write something. And I ended up writing a uh, uh, it was actually a chapter on monsters in early modern Japan as part of a series of web-based textbooks, which no longer exist. Um, but uh, and within that, I took the earthquake catfish and put, I put some information about that up. And uh, maybe a year or two later, a, um, a seismologist who work, works on cultural uh, um, cultural 
indicators of past earthquakes, uh, partly in, in the sense that if, if we look at old myths and legends, for example, we you, this would give us an idea of where to look with our you know, with our equipment. Um, and uh, so her name Ruth Ludwin. Uh, uh, she's retired now. Um, and uh, so she contacted me and asked me some questions about uh, Japanese earthquake law. To answer her questions, I had to do a little more reading and research. And in the course of doing that reading and research, I became hooked on the topic. Uh, initially, the cultural aspects of earthquakes, but then it's, it has developed into all these other areas. So thanks to these sort of accidental circumstances, and this would be circa 2002, 2003, uh, I uh, you know, sort of got into this topic. Uh, otherwise, I was planning on just continuing to do more work on, on the Ryukyu Kingdom. This is that that's actually fascinating because um, among well among other reasons that uh, what you just said is fascinating the the importance of accident and accidental circumstances in shaping the course of history is very much related to one of the themes that I think thread through both of the books and that's the importance of recognizing um, the impossibility of prediction. Um, in certain ways, right? So this sort of, um, it's it's interesting, I think, always to think about how our um, personal and professional and intellectual circumstances often interweave with those of what we study in, in really interesting and sometimes unconscious ways. Exactly, yes. So When the Earth Roars um, is the more recent of the two books. And what we'll do is we're going to use some of the important themes of When the Earth Roars to kind of guide us today and then open up into the other book at a point in which I think it makes sense to do so. So okay. this book um, came out in 2014, and it looks closely at the history of earthquakes in a very particular region of Japan. And this is along the Sanriku coast. Um, and, and this is a book that charts developments along this coast um, from early modernity through now. So can you maybe start us off by saying a little bit about that region? Why focus on that region? And can you talk about um, how you came to that decision in organizing this book? Yes, this book was um, um, relatively short in the making, and it's very much the result of the 311 uh, disaster, the, the March 11th, 2011 earthquake and tsunami in this exactly the same air place. Uh, and before that event, I was aware of the earthquake history of the region to, to some extent, just as I was for the, the whole of Japan. Uh, and so immediately I was called upon to... to participate in panels and make other kind of commentary and I, uh, uh, you know, got myself up to speed in the, the specific earthquake history of that region. And uh, so this book is in part uh, an attempt to not to analyze the 311 disaster itself so much as to uh, put it into a, a broader historical context, both the history of the earth in that region and also the, the history of um, ideas. Uh, connected with those earthquakes uh, in, in in the northeast Japan, so uh, that was actually the main impetus uh, uh, for this book. I had recently finished Seismic Japan, uh, and uh, but there was obviously a demand out there for a historically informed uh, contextualization of the 311 disaster. Great, and so in fact, throughout the book, 
it makes really clear um, when the Earth wars does, when there are parallels or points of conjuncture with 311, uh, earthquake, tsunami, and disaster. And the book is actually really careful to disaggregate those three um, aspects of 311, right? The earthquake, the tsunami, and the disaster as related but um, in, in some ways, distinct um, elements of what happened and, and how we ought to understand the consequences and the histories of what happened. So, yes. so the book advances arguments in three areas, and you lay this out, I think, really beautifully at the beginning. And we'll use those areas to guide us, I think, for the rest of our discussion. So one of those areas um, that you advance really important arguments in this book is the an area that um, can be described with the very s- seemingly simple sentence, right? Earthquakes are chaotic events. They can't be predicted. Now, this is really, really important um, to motivate both books. And so let's talk about a, a few elements of that that seem uh, particularly important. So one of the things that you raise um, at the very beginning of this book or early on is that there's a tendency... Um, that falls under, I think, this rubric of like assuming that there's some way to predict or to characterize earthquakes. There's something about this that is related to an association of Japan and Japanese-ness or the Japanese with earthquakes. And one of the things that this book is doing is problematizing these kinds of culturally based explanations and arguing against a reductionist tendency to connect the Japanese and earthquakes. Since I think this is a really important point, um, could you speak a little bit to that for us? Yes, um, uh, I'm I'm glad you you picked up on that point, uh, very, one of the first uh, contacts I had with a journalist after the 311 disaster, uh, a journalist sort of calling out of the blue from uh, some uh, news organization in Canada, actually, uh, uh, in the course of the questions he asked me, it was clear that he wanted me to comment on, to, to provide some sort of a uh, uh, cultural explanation for what was unfolding in Japan. Uh, and I consistently re- refused to do that. In fact, I, you know, I was trying to emphasize that that's not the, the best direction to go in. And uh, 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 this poor journalist seemed rather frustrated with me. But uh, uh, that was my first indication that, uh, yeah, this would be an important uh, undercurrent in this book would be to, to uh, make the argument that uh, material circumstances uh, will almost always trump cultural circumstances. I don't mean to suggest that culture doesn't matter at all, of course. Um, but uh, it, uh, in the case of Japan, I think there's just been so much exaggeration, uh, it, not just with respect to earthquakes, obviously, but with so many other things. Uh, and so uh, in all my work, uh, for example, even in my earlier work on the Ryukyu, part of what I'm trying to do is to problematize the whole notion of Japan as a nice, neat, easy-to-explain kind of a, a, of a thing. Okay. Speaking of material circumstances, what listeners and you might be hearing in the background is the uh, New Books in East Asian Studies cat scratching around and making sure that everything's where it should be materially in our home as well. So that's what you're hearing in the background. Okay, so along with problematizing this idea that there are cultural, um, some sort of cultural um, aspects of this that override material, the material importance of thinking through earthquakes in Japan, one of the other really important consequences that comes out of this uh, constellation of arguments in the book 
um, is the importance of understanding the problem of short-sightedness, as you put it, and assuming that one earthquake will be like the last one. Now, this has consequences throughout both books, and we'll talk about those in turn, um, but one of them speaks directly to our understanding of, and, and our understanding of some of the circumstances that brought about the 311 disaster. Now, you make the point very early on in um, When the Earth Roars that earthquakes lack characteristic features as geophysical phenomena and natural disasters. So, in other words, we can't predict what the outcome of any sort of earthquake event is going to be. However, um, local residents have often assumed that previous earthquake or tsunami would be characteristic of the next one, okay? So that's one um, thing to keep in mind. Okay, so related to this, even though and, and you make this, I think, very clear early on. Even though there's a lack of an ability to predict, there still are some things that we can do and that we perhaps should be doing in order to prepare for the potentiality of the kinds of disasters um, that resulted, for example, in 311. And the book argues, and here's, so I'm coming to my question now. So the book argues that experts in Japan's nuclear power industry in some ways should have known that an earthquake of the magnitude that we saw in 311 was possible, and that industry officials actually ignored a series of warnings that were available that may have, if heeded, mitigated some of the effects of 311. So can you talk about um, that? Because that seems to, to me to be really important, both for the work that the book is doing and the way that the book um, resonates with uh, contemporary and recent events. Certainly. Um, as you point out, uh, I'm I'm, I'm trying to make a, a kind of a related argument that a, maybe a, on the surface might even seem somewhat contradictory. Now, on the one hand, um, earthquakes are not predictable uh, geophysically, for one thing, although um, and on that point, um, sort of uh, survey some of the, uh, the, the literature and then leave that to the, the, the seismologists to continue to debate as to whether ultimately we can ever predict an earthquake or not sometime down the future. Uh, but what, and then what I like, what I focus on is that in addition to the geophysical unpredictability of earthquakes, they are also unpredictable as social phenomena. In other words, they're going to, society is so complex and the specific circumstances at any time uh, an earthquake might occur will vary from, you know, time to time and place to place sufficiently that we, we can never predict exactly uh, how an earthquake will play out socially. On the other hand, however, I don't mean to suggest some kind of uh, complete inability to have any idea what might happen. Obviously, we, by looking at the history of earthquakes in detail, uh, especially getting into the, the nitty-gritty details, we see over and over certain types of uh, uh, problems occurring within society as a result of the earthquakes, certain reactions to them. And we also just get a broader picture of what is at least within the realm of the possible. In other words, if, if something has happened in the past, it might happen in the future, although we cannot say that you know, for sure that A will happen again in the future just as it happened in the past, but, but it's, it's part of the inventory. Um, and so now to your specific question, uh, it turns out that um, uh, there was quite, uh, I mean, it was not a, a major booming voice, but it wasn't particularly difficult to go and look at um, uh, the voices of uh, concerned regulators or scientists uh, who, uh, for, years, for several years running, have been pointing out that um, 
uh, a magnitude nine class earthquake is possible uh, in uh, certain in the subduction zones of Japan. And one important uh, development in, in that was the advent of moment magnitude in the 1980s, in which a number of previously magnitude eight class events were upgraded to magnitude nine events. And we see several of them occurring, the Chile earthquake, the Good Friday, Alaska earthquake, the Kamchatka earthquake, uh, several of them occurring in the, you know, the, the Pacific region. Uh, there was also interest in uh, paleo seismology, interest in uh, um, uh, ancient earthquakes that, although we can never really say exactly what, what went on with them, that seemed to be uh, of a magnitude nine class capability. And this sort of knowledge was known to at least um, some prominent members of the uh, nuclear power um, industry. Uh, I suspect that in many cases, people might have known of this potential danger, but were hoping that it wouldn't happen uh, before we can get some of these older plants offline and and, and things like that. Uh, So... Yes, I um, I would say, uh, and I argue in the book that um, uh, that this idea that this was an unforeseeable, uh, unimaginable sort of event—the magnitude nine earthquake uh, that then touched off the uh, the nuclear part of the disaster—that uh, this uh, argument is not uh, uh, doesn't hold up under under close scrutiny. Thank you so much. Um, so if the first constellation of arguments has to do with this, you know, un- the issue of unpredictability and the chaotic nature of earthquakes, the second constellation of arguments have to do with history and how we understand both how to relate history to contemporary understandings of seismology and earthquakes, and also how the history of earthquakes in Japan helped shape and form the history of science and technology, and specifically seismology and anti-seismic engineering in Japan and also beyond. So there are really interesting transnational elements to this story as well. So one of the things that comes out here um, that you argue pretty strongly in both books is the importance of the fact that ideas from Japan's early modern past not only continue to influence popular views of early modern earthquakes, but also continue to influence popular views of modern earthquakes right now. And more than that, don't just influence popular views, but also influence in really interesting and at least for me as a reader, really surprising ways, earthquake science and resource allocation. So this is an argument or a set of arguments that really argues that or really kind of I think made me realize, and and I'm sure that other readers have this experience too, um, in a very surprising way, how resonant early modern history is for science today in a way that's, um, I I thought that was fascinating and surprising. So I'll ask you a couple, uh, or to speak to a couple elements of this, and um, please feel free to, you know, kind of talk about whatever you'd like, because there's so many elements of just this part of the story that could keep us going, I think, for hours. So um, one of the things that comes up is particularly important relating to this issue is the issue of prediction and precursors. So one especially problematic set of examples that fall under the rubric I just described is a continuing quest for earthquake precursors that you argue is rooted in the experiences and intellectual milieu of the Tokugawa period, and especially the 19th century. 
Now, as a historian, um, you know, I'm particularly fascinated with sources. And in the set of uh, pages and chapters that deal with this particular set of issues in both books, one of the really great things um, that you're doing here is to open our eyes to some really amazing sources um, that speak directly to this issue of precursors and the continuing resonances of this idea of precursors. One of the sources that you mentioned that you say is really, really important is this book by Kojima Tozan called Thoughts on Earthquakes. At least that's the English translation. Um, you talk about the kind of this text in terms of a history of understanding psychological impacts of earthquakes. And so, uh, and also the history of the idea of precursors that has continuing resonances. So to open up this part of the story, could you talk to us a little about, a little bit about this book, um, Tozan's Thoughts on Earthquakes? What's going on there? Um, why do you think it's important? And perhaps what are some of the other um, crucial sources for you that you're really excited about um, that sort of open up this part of the story? Okay, certainly. Yes. Um, the, um, this is something that as I worked on the topic, more and more, I also, I was sort of surprised, although in a sense not surprised, because I, I've seen this sort of thing in other realms, but I was surprised about, in some sense, the extent to which um, uh, early modern ideas about earthquakes um, have carried over and continued and continue to influence uh, people's thinking at both the popular level and especially but even to some extent in the scientific agenda or research agenda in, in the modern era. And um, uh, one of the points that I make in When the Earth Roars, I make it in both books, but it's it's more developed in When the Earth Roars, in, in part because I was responding to comments of one of the reviewers and one of the editors, um, is that this the, the early modern um I, conception of earthquakes in Japan was fairly stable. In other words, yes, there were variations on the on the basic ideas, but until about 1855, uh, and from and from about 1700, so for a century and a half, the idea that earthquakes are explosive events that are specifically caused by the accumulation of yang energy in the earth. This is the yin yang dichotomy, uh, it, and it gets there through the forces mainly of wind and sunlight, although there are also other possible mechanisms, um, and that, that this is the basic cause of earthquakes. Uh, and this idea made perfectly good sense given the knowledge available in, say, 1750 or 1850. Um, uh, but it doesn't make any uh, sense uh, as we move into the modern era, and especially after plate tectonics has become established. Um, and, and yet, so often, what I found was that modern or contemporary commentators, whether it be, they be popular or sort of, there's this whole realm of, of people with scientific credentials who kind of write popular books about this in, in Japan, so I'm not quite sure exactly how to characterize it, but maybe the in-between type literature, um, that they will so often cite something from whether it be thoughts on earthquakes or any of the other many, many uh, sources and texts available, uh, uncritically, just take it at face value and say, you see, this is ancient wisdom from way back. <laughs> and, and, and actually, thoughts on earthquakes is a rigorous 
academic book in it from its day of 1830. Um, but there were plenty of other sources that were, you know, sort of the, the stuff you'd buy in the supermarket checkout line, even in those days. But, but without, there's a tendency to lump it all together as old, venerable historical documents uh, and without uh, attempting to make any sort of distinction as to the reliability of the document and say, see, it says over here that a catfish predicted an earthquake uh, uh, and so it must have been the case. So that's, that's one of the things I, I, I point out in, in one way or another is that we really need to um, uh, look at this with a more critical uh, understanding of, of history. Now, the sources are overwhelming. There's so many interesting sources. And what's nice about working on Japanese earthquakes is that they're all compiled. The vast majority of them are compiled in printed form. Uh, although in some cases we have to look at the, um, the, the, the handwritten form. But even then, there's usually four or five different PDFs available in different archives. And so if there's a, a questionable character, you can zoom in and out of it you know, with several different copies and and it just makes life uh, easier than it used to be even, say, 15 or 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, the, the, there are several key texts in the Japanese earthquake history that, um, with thoughts on earthquakes being uh, perhaps the most important of them, uh, especially because it really did advance uh, certain ideas that are still, uh, you know, the idea, for example, that every earthquake has an epicenter, and that uh, the, the intensity of the shaking tends to get uh, to diminish as you get farther away from the epicenter. Uh, it's something that people knew already, but, but what thoughts on earthquake does is it puts this into very clear uh, and almost systematic form. Um, the, that particular book was inspired by the 1830 Kyoto earthquake. The Kyoto earthquake uh, probably killed about 150 to 200 people, which is to say it wasn't not such a, it wasn't necessarily a major destructive earthquake, but as is so often the case, other factors than just the sheer death toll uh, often come into play uh, to make an earthquake important. And to briefly, in this case, in 1830 was a special, a year of special religious significance. For those of you who know about Japanese religion, this would be an Okage year, which occurs once every 12, it's once around the, the, the 12 year calendrical cycle. And so, uh, and it was also the the imperial capital, uh, and so these two things got people's attention, and the mass media had developed at this to to a, a point at this uh, by eighteen thirty, even earlier. But but uh, in time for this earthquake to occur, we have this very aggressive mass media that's looking to sell newspapers or, or uh, single sheet newspapers or more elaborate publications. And they tend to get into a kind of a media frenzy, uh, exaggerating the extent to which this has been a big disaster, so that people will be fascinated by that and by the, uh, the newspapers. This is just three. Uh, there's actually other factors, but three factors that made this Kyoto earthquake particularly noteworthy, not only in Kyoto, but all throughout Japan, as it was gets to be reported in the popular press. And so that earthquake inspired several works of um, uh, literature, with Jishinko, Thoughts on Earthquakes, being the, uh, the most important work. And it was this is explicitly a work, that the, the attempt was to say to people, calm down, don't worry. Earthquakes are explainable. There's a reason for them. Uh, and, and in this book, we'll explain that to you. They have occurred uh, 
Olympics throughout the past, both in Japan and in China. And uh, although this uh, this work doesn't go into other places, other works would be mentioned even further afield. And uh, um, so, you know, the, 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 um, there's not, this is a perfectly explainable. It's an unfortunate phenomenon, but it's perfectly explainable. That's essentially what uh, this book was about. And it it then pulled together uh, the, the the prevailing knowledge of the time, put it into a very clear form, and thus became an influential book going forward. Uh, so we find it often quoted in later earthquakes, like the eighteen. Uh, uh, 47 Zen Koji earthquake or the 1855 Ansa Edo earthquake. Mm-hmm. Great. Thank you so much. Now, you mentioned the Kobe, um, or the rather the Kyoto earthquake of 1830. Um, there are several earthquakes that you mention um, here in this part of the book and that actually allow us to open up to the other book that were particularly influential both for contemporary understandings of earthquakes and and well beyond. The Anse Edo earthquake was one of these earthquakes, and this makes up the focus of the book Seismic Japan. So let's move to that for a little bit. Okay, great. And that would also, um, there's something I want to say about um, precursors in this connection, but go ahead and and Ask me the question, and I'll be able to get back to that. Oh, yeah, totally, because this is um, because actually I was going to this is all about precursors, right? Or or I was or this is very germane um, to the to this earthquake and to what I was going to ask you about it. So I'll just kind of say a little bit about um, the book and then we can talk more about precursors and in this particular context, too. So Seismic Japan argues that, among other things, the Ansei Edo earthquake not only played an important role in shaping ideas about Japan, so political ideas religious ideas, geographical and scientific ideas, but also generated new ways of thinking about human agency and earthquakes that continue to be influential in Japan. And a lot of this has to do with, or at least an important part of these ideas about human agency and earthquakes have to do with this issue of precursors. Um, So to kind of maybe um, give you a chance to then open out into uh, whatever you wanted to uh, mention about precursors, can you maybe talk about some of the most important ways in which this was the case um, that are germane to the Ansei Edo case? And, you know, whatever else you want to mention for us actually about precursors, I'd I'd love to hear. Okay, very good. Yeah. Actually, it was in the context of this 1830 thoughts and earthquakes that I wanted to, and, but this, this is all uh, relevant um, because um, in by the time of the 1855 Anse Edo earthquake, which um, is arguably the most important uh, pre-modern earthquake, uh, early modern earthquake, uh, in a sense because it's a culmination of uh, earthquake lore, earthquake. I don't, I, I'm hesitant to use the word culture, but earthquake-related knowledge of the past all sort of comes to a head at, in Anse Edo. Anse Edo then also shakes up the, the reigning paradigm of how earthquakes um, uh, occur because it, it actually should not have occurred. Uh, and, uh, and then it also has influence going forward. Uh, part of this uh, sort of past and then Anse Edo is pivot and then moving forward kind of uh, trajectory involves uh, the idea of precursors, which are still so important uh, today. And I tried to uh, figure out at what point in um, um, sort of at what point a well-educated Japanese person would would have been thinking, earthquakes ought to be predictable based on recognizing certain uh, precursor, precursory signs. 
and uh, and thinking that that's at least within the realm of human possibility. And as far as I can tell, it goes back to the 1828 Sanjo earthquake. Um, and but but I'm, I'm almost certain this idea even has earlier roots. I just haven't found specific examples of it. But certainly in 1828 we see it, and then in 1830, just two less than two years later, with um, thoughts and earthquakes. We basically have in that book the idea that, okay, calm down, earthquakes are explainable. And not only that, earthquakes have pre- precursors. Here's a list of precursors. Uh, and actually, this comes up in two different parts in the, in the work. And in the 1830 case, the, the main idea there was to say, notice that these precursors have not um, are no longer in evidence. And in other words, the, the earthquake that has just occurred was the main shock. This is always a big problem in, in the 19th century earthquakes, even earlier. But by the 19th century, the idea of aftershocks and main shots was well established. And uh, there were different terms for them. But, but um, uh, uh, in any case, this, there was always this worry, uh, is what we just had the worst of it? Is the worst over or is the worst yet to come? And so part of the argument in 1830 was um, we have a list of reliable precursors to earthquakes. The precursors occurred, the earthquake happened, uh, and the precursors are no longer occurring. Therefore, you need not worry about something worse happening. In other words, what has just happened what was the main shock. So that was the, exact, the particular argument in 1830. But the interesting thing in the broader uh, context is that the idea that human beings, through careful observation and uh, pooling together of knowledge and so forth, ought to be able to recognize uh, reliable precursors to earthquake is out there by 1830. In 1855, in the Anza-Edo earthquake, it's even stronger. Um, and uh, we get all sorts of accounts in journalistic literature of people who claimed this or that uh, phenomenon, you know, certain kinds of clouds uh, were a precursor, or most famously, catfish mm-hmm. swimming around in an agitated manner. Uh, and, and this comes from a completely unverified story about some fishermen who saw these catfish swimming around and uh, ran home and put all his possessions outside. Uh, it's the earliest known um, reference to catfish as possible earthquake uh, predictors which is kind of interesting. Many people are confused about that. They think they know that catfish were symbols of earthquake in, in Japanese culture earlier than 1855, and they assume that people must have thought that, therefore, catfish could somehow predict earthquakes. But that idea actually seems to have its origins in, uh, in 1855. But anyway, um, all right, so what are some of the precursors? The precursors tend to make sense, and they tend to make sense based on the idea that an earthquake is young energy pent up in the earth, seeking to rise, being blocked by clay soil. Uh, that, you know, in, in other words, if it was sandy soil, it would just percolate through. If it was permafrost kind of stuff, it wouldn't be able to get through. But if it's clay, it's it's just right for, for an explosive event. And so as it's building up to this critical point, uh, heat is going to seep out of the earth. And so the climate will seem to be unusually warm, unseasonably warm. So that's a classic precursor, unseasonably warm weather in, in the wintertime. Uh, people feel it. Plants begin to bloom uh, earlier than they should. 
uh, and then this rising mist or vapor or whatever you want to call it, young energy of some sort, will uh, result in, uh, if you look up in the sky at the sun, the sun will seem hazy. There will be a rainbow uh, effect. Uh, there are all sorts of um, derivative ideas. It'll look like there's smoke coming out of the ground. Um, and these are the classic precursors that uh, developed in the 19th century and then carry forward uh, at, uh, into the future. Basically, earthquake prediction as it exists today is no different, I argue. I mean, it's different in the details, yes. And of course, the machinery and equipment is much more sophisticated for monitoring things, but it's still the search for the elusive, reliable precursor. In other words, something that occurs uh, that we can measure and that occurs before a major earthquake, but only before a major earthquake, uh, not just randomly, uh, and then sometimes it just happens to correspond. That's that's actually what we always find is the case. But so the the, the look for a reliable uh, precursor. It's pretty much the same basic idea, uh, even though the details are different and the sophistication is much greater today. The same basic idea that we find in say 1830 or 1855, and it has produced approximately the same results. Which is to say, the there's it's not proven to be fruitful at all uh, as a means of predicting earthquakes. Right. Now, this is one of, um, you know, as a historian of science, this is one of the really exciting things about uh, the work that these books are doing, because it's so often that, you know, especially in the general climate that we're in right now, where there are arguments about the humanities not being useful, and, you know, why would you want to study the humanities? A big part of that for historians of science often tends to be, you know, questions about why history of science is useful. You know, like, what, why does it matter to people doing work right now, aside from all of the really wonderful, you know, things about a liberal arts education and a humanistic education. I mean, one of the things here that comes out in really striking, um, just saturation and really striking detail is how much taking the approach of a historian and a historian of science, of um, culture, of politics, of, of whatever, um, but the approach of a historian to understanding the circumstances that brought about and the context that brought about contemporary attitudes toward um, earthquakes and seismology and resource allocation, etc. cetera, under, understanding that historically really profoundly changes how we understand practices right now and profoundly informs and gives us, I think, a way to understand perhaps how to move forward in a way that's completely striking. So um, I was really um, very impressed and, and very um, touched by that element of the work that both books are doing. And, and what you just described is really a perfect example of how that comes out and how that resonates in both books. So thank you for that. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for pointing that out. Oh, of course. And thank you on behalf of History of Science Everywhere. So one of the kinds of work um, that the book does as well, and this is Seismic Japan in particular, in addition to speaking to these larger issues that are also the kinds of issues that run through when the earth roars, you're also making an argument in this book in particular, in Seismic Japan, that I want to just make sure we take a moment to look at um, even just a little bit, because it's an important part of the work that the book is doing. You also 
situate the Anse Edo earthquake in the context of how, or in the larger context of how we understand Edo society and how we understand historical change from a social perspective. The book argues in particular that although this earthquake, the Anse, uh, the Anse Edo quake, wasn't by itself revolutionary, it didn't by itself change everything, its effects did condition Edo society for major change. And since this is an important conclusion of the book. Could you maybe speak a little bit to that and some of the most important elements of that argument for you as they come out of the book? Certainly. Um, the This book actually has a kind of a du- this dual quality. You could call it schizophrenic perhaps, but we'll just say a dual quality uh, that on the one hand it's, a, it's social history and on the other hand it, it has this, it's a history of science. And um, so certain chapters tend to be uh, stronger in one of those, you know, one of those aspects or the other. And so um, this, it, it, it's very interesting. The, the earthquake itself, it was destructive and, and, and so forth, but it wasn't, um, it, it, well, in modern times, it, it, the, the extent of, of its destructiveness was greatly exaggerated. Um, and you'd have talked of hundreds of thousands, 100,000 or more people dead, dead and so forth. It was more like eight thousand. It's still many people. It was so. It was a, it was a major event, but uh, but it wasn't uh, certainly something that, uh, in and of itself, you'd think would bankrupt the government or cause huge, major, long term disruption or anything like that. But so uh, so often, uh, what's is, is these accidents that we talked about uh, that, that you mentioned earlier. Uh, the Anse Edo earthquake occurs at a time when the the Bakufu, the military government, is relatively weak. It's in decline. It's still strong, and it's in power. And there's no other rival power. That's but, but it's but, but it's it's certainly seen its better days and its stronger days. Um, the earthquake occurs at that point. It also occurs uh, at a time when the Japanese islands, for whatever reason, uh, if, I don't know if there even is a reason. It might well just be random. Was particularly active seismically. Uh, there had been um, a, a sort of a two megathrust earthquakes, the Anse uh, Tokai and Nankai earthquakes that had occurred the previous year. It's whether you count those as two different earthquakes or one is a little hard because it's the same fault that's rupturing. It ruptures and then a, about a day later, the rest of it goes. Um, and this is actually that that that, that Tokai earthquake that people are obsessed with today. Is that was the last of them was 1854. But there were also earthquakes in 1853 and uh, really pretty much from the late 1840s onward, there had just been uh, earthquakes all over in the Japanese islands. So at the one in 1855 almost seems like a culmination in some people's minds. Oh, it's shaking the shogun's capital. And this is especially interesting is that it's the shogun's capital takes a direct hit. Uh, many of the shogun's top offices and, and uh, leading uh, the, the, the warlords who were uh, the, the most important members of the shogun's government, many, just by random chance, their mansions happened to be in a place that was once a swamp, and so they uh, go down in flames, and, and so there, there are all these sort of dramatic ways in which the earth shakes down and, and almost like slaps around the military government. And even though people, and one, one thing I want to, want to emphasize here is that people did not um, interpret this as, oh, it's a heavenly punishment against the military government, or not necessarily. I mean, that was a potential way, line of interpretation. 
But it was a potential line of interpretation that didn't go very far, uh, in part because the response of the military government in the relief effort was was so good. But also there are other uh, more complex reasons for that. Um, but uh, so I argue that the weakening of the military government, which is a very real consequence of this earthquake, was not a direct thing where, oh, the people of, of Edo are angry at the military government, which wouldn't make sense anyway because the military government was the industry and was, uh, Edo was a was a factory town uh, with military government being the source of, uh, of, of its economic vitality. So instead, it, it's that the, the, this seemingly invincible military uh, machine is shown to be weak. The uh, offshore gun batteries that uh, Previously, Commodore Perry had sailed his ships right up to within shooting range of Edo Castle, and that inspired the offshore gun batteries, which then uh, all went up in flames in the earthquake. Uh, That's one aspect. Or the destruction of all the Bakufu infrastructure, uh, or the fact that the Bakufu was pressured into giving lots of money to to its retainers so that they could rebuild. Um, All these things show the Bakufu to be fallible, to be weak. Uh, and, and we even have uh, things like, uh, perhaps most dramatic, is this this popular tale, uh, the catfish Taiheiki, with Taiheiki being one of these great military chronicles, in which, um, with a very thinly, uh, I, would, I wouldn't even say disguised, but just a very thin symbolism, layer of symbolism, and we have the cowardly warriors of the Bakufu who are in... Uh, unable to contain the rebellion of Catfish and his nefarious associates. Uh, and, uh, you know, so, I mean, very clearly, the, the, the military government is coming in for a lot of um, uh, getting its comeuppance. Uh, and then uh, this uh, carries over, and 12 years later, uh, it actually falls. And the earthquake in 1855 even, in some ways, replicates the fall of the Bakufu in the sense that uh, Bakufu and the military government, I should give them a habit of saying it that way, uh, uh, in that the imperial deity from from Kyoto, Amaterasu, the the great shining avatar, the sun goddess, basically, uh, except that it's it's complicated. Actually, she's usually conceived of as a man at that time. Uh, But anyway, so anyway, Amaterasu... uh, comes to Edo to restore order in the wake of the earthquake. Well, 12 years later, the imperial army comes into Edo to establish a new government. So there's almost this uncanny, um, uh, almost like a, a dress rehearsal uh, in 1855 of what will happen 12 years later. And um, just your mentioning of Amaterasu and your mentioning of um, these other deities also reminds me to mention for listeners um, to kind of key into something that might not otherwise be obvious about these books. People who are particularly interested in the history of religion will find a lot of really fascinating material in these books that doesn't that precisely doesn't do the kind of work that you were urging us, you know, not to do is to you know assume that um, explanations for these earthquakes were um, were about you know deities and retribution, but that does introduce to us a whole range of gods that emerge um, for the first time out of some of these earthquake um, examples or 
some of these earthquake events. So for example, you talk in Seismic Japan about the production of new deities out of this earthquake, including, and these are two of my favorite characters um, in both books, as you can probably imagine, second to none plasterer Buddha and roof tile earthen storehouse Bodhisattva, and in addition to earthquake Sama. So there's a whole history of gods um, as well that's embedded in these books. That's really fascinating. So I just wanted to signal and mark that for, for listeners who might be particularly interested in that element of the story um, to go and um, look in these books for that because they'll find uh, a lot of material on that. Okay, so as we move from um, Seismic Japan out back into When the Earth Roars, we move back out into the third um, set of arguments that uh, When the Earth Roars is making and that the um, material in Seismic Japan also speaks to. And this is a set of arguments about resource allocation and seismic hazards. Now, we began to talk about this a little bit at the beginning of our conversation when we talked about 311 and the nuclear event that followed 311, but there are some larger points about, again, the ways that a history of seismicity and a history of earthquakes in Japan have shaped resource allocation and legislation around earthquakes in Japan today that are that seem to me to be very important um, and very powerful arguments. So I wanted to, um, toward the end of our interview, bring us um, to that element of the book in our conversation. So this part of the book argues that, as we've mentioned a little bit before, it is possible and it is desirable to adopt a risk management strategy to try to anticipate and mitigate the effects of major points of risk and vulnerability. And you've talked about this a little bit already. So despite the fact that earthquakes are chaotic events that are not predictable, it is still possible to manage the risk to some extent. Now, you take us in the end of this book to a point at which you uh, mention a major problem. Now, the earthquake or the history of earthquake prediction has largely been unsuccessful, and efforts based on it have drawn a huge allocation of resources that would be better used elsewhere. One of the areas that you designate as particularly problematic that's gotten a whole bunch of resources, even though the history and science behind it are really troubling, is data collection. Um, so can you talk a little bit for us about, like, what do we need to understand about how resources are being allocated to data collection around earthquake prediction to understand the problems there, the ways that history perhaps shapes those problems, and understand what we might do better? Okay, yes. Um, this, uh, uh, it sounds like, where do we even start here? Yeah, I, I know, I'm sorry. So, it's but that's okay. Well, let's pick up on the, the point I made earlier about the quest for precursors as the um, it continues to be the model. And that's where the data collection uh, uh, fits in. Uh, there was a, a document in the 1960s uh, known as, the, it's, today it's called the Blueprint uh, in both English and Japanese. Um, and it was a very modest proposal by uh, some uh, uh, seismologists and geophysicists who were interested in getting funding for earthquake prediction, working on earthquake prediction. And um, and, and in, in all fairness, even though I'm very critical of the earthquake prediction uh, endeavor, uh, it, it, it made a certain sense at that time to think that you know, this is worth, this is something we should look into. Uh, and, uh, the, the war disrupted uh, things and, and Japan has now got is becoming has the wealth and, and so forth that it can devote energy to these kinds of 
matters, and earthquakes are uh, obviously a major threat. And so let's investigate uh, the possibility of earthquake prediction. Well, anyway, the, the blueprints uh, very modestly uh, said, give us money to collect data for 10 years. And then once we've done that, we should be able to say whether it's even possible to predict an earthquake at some point in the future. Not that, In other words, the claim was not give us money for 10 years of data collection and then we can predict earthquakes. It was, and then we'll even know if that's within the realm of the possible or the reasonable. Um, and as you can imagine, this sort of um, um, claim or, or, or the, the, uh, argument is a very uh, reasonable and responsible one, but it doesn't really sell. Is this going to sell? You know, is a politician going to really go to bat for uh, getting money for this purpose? Uh, if you, you know, ten years from now, you're just going to be able to maybe say that this is even possible or not. So, you know, what, what the politicians tend to want is uh, a much stronger statement. You know, give us this amount of money, and in five years, we'll be able to tell you when the next earthquake is going to happen. You know, that's sort of a, a claim. So, there's this constant tension in the post in post-war Japan between a scientific community that um, you know, is trying to be as re- responsible, but is tempted by uh, uh, the possibility of a lot of money. But in order to get this money, you t- you're, you're going to have to, to some degree or another, uh, uh, either be, keep quiet about some of the problems or be overly enthusiastic about uh, uh, what science might be able to do. And, and this is not something unique to Japan. And, and, of course, in the book, I do point out in the United States, the same thing happened and, and in, in other countries as well. So um, uh, the, the search for a precursor t- takes the form of collecting data. Now, the, the data collection networks are, uh, are, tend to be proprietary, uh, and they tend to duplicate. Uh, uh, there's a lot of overlap. Uh, because you know, it's, there's just some degree of competitiveness of different, based in different universities, uh, they will get funding for, and, and they'll have their own networks, and then another system will have its own networks. Um, so one criticism that sometimes uh, the, sci- the, the, the scientific community makes about this whole thing is that, okay, if you're going to be collecting all this data, at least open things up to everybody so that all the scientists can have access to all this, all this data. But anyway, the, 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 it's more, I would almost characterize it as a religious faith at this point, is uh, that if we continue to collect and amass more data and then analyze it in various ways, surely somewhere in all that stuff, uh, there will be a precursor, a reliable precursor that we can find. And in, in um, When the Earth Roars, I actually will quote some people, partly to bring out this element of almost like a faith, uh, where they say, Look at the amount of uh, energy that an earthquake produces. Look how much uh, of the Earth's crust is displaced. Uh, surely when such powerful forces are at work, something must happen ahead of time uh, that we should be able to measure. Uh, you know, this is the spate. Therefore, you know, let's keep uh, uh, amassing data. So uh, some uh, scientists in Japan have complained that this this search this data collection process is really a technological matter. I mean, you, could, you get the, you put the equipment in there. You have technicians uh, running the equipment. You have these computers uh, collecting the data, and uh, and this there's an opportunity cost just within science, and that one of them is uh, a lack of attention to, for example, experimental science. Not that there's zero of that, but it, you know, the relative. You know, 
opportunity cost in terms of resource allocation, and that uh, earthquake prediction or, or, or seismology in general uh, might seem boring to an aspiring new scientist because of its uh, there's so much focus just on on data collection. Um, that's part of it, but in the bigger picture, uh, uh, money that is spent on earthquake prediction. And, and by the way, I should point out that after 1995, the, the there's this shift in, in terminology. And in Japanese, it's yochi before that time, and then yosoku afterwards. It's the difference roughly between prediction or short-term prediction and forecasting, as in, like, say, a weather forecast. So now they always talk about forecasting because they, um, um, no one is crazy enough to just propose that we can actually predict an earthquake in the short term, especially after so many dramatic uh, failures uh, to, to even you know, have any warning whatsoever. But um, the idea, is, so so we're putting all this money now into earthquake forecasting, and I'm not quite sure. A lot of people pointed out, well, let's say that we really could forecast earthquake probabilities. What good is that? I mean, especially because in the Japanese islands, you can be sure that a major earthquake is always a danger pretty much anywhere you are. Um, so that, but that's one one line of criticism. But uh, the other is simply that the money that goes into that uh, might be better spent uh, in anti-seismic engineering, for example, government-sponsored research, which has proven to be so effective ever since 1995, or even in much more mundane, you know, un- un- non-dramatic but very important things like you know, putting a whole bunch of chain-link fence-type uh, webbing across uh, places that where highways have been cut through mountains. Uh, that alone it would be a tremendously useful expenditure of funds and doesn't depend on predicting any particular earthquake at any particular time or even what the social response to it will be. We know that as much netting as possible that we can stick up uh, on these uh, areas is going to prevent highways from you know, being blocked off by boulders or cars being crushed and so forth. And this is a, a guaranteed, low-cost, effective use of money. Uh, so some seismologists have just pointed that out, so we don't even need to, you know, even putting aside the dramatic swaying buildings, which are important, but uh, there's all sorts of uh, or, you know, uh, 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 wider roads uh, so that people can better evacuate from tsunami-prone uh, areas, you know, things like that. These are all ways that areas into which I suggest in, in the book, and I'm not unique in this. This is I'm, I'm really relying in many ways on, on the voices from among the Japanese scholarly and scientific community uh, that this would be a better expenditure of funds than this constant increasing of the data collection network in the hope of finding the precursor that we haven't found since the 1820s. That's right. Great. Thank you so much. And the whole, um, just to emphasize what you just said, the whole end of that book really gives some concrete um, examples of how to move forward, including um, a focus on the kinds of um, material circumstances of the environment uh, that you just mentioned. And so sort of alerting us to uh, just the importance of staying aware of the soil base of different regions, of the difference between upland and lowland regions and how that affects possible outcomes of earthquake-related disasters, and also to kind of alert us to be aware of the consequences of population density and construction quality. And these are um, these also come out of both books. There's also, um, and I'll mention this without asking you to talk too much about it, um, there's also an urging at the end of this book to help us... O- 
avoid complacency, right? And a sort of one of the problems uh, that you mentioned here in earthquake history has been a kind of overconfidence and a diminished attention to risk moving forward. And the book ends by looking at some of the larger implications of an awareness um, of the, these possible future outcomes and, and an avoidance of complacency well beyond Japan. Um, and so including places in the Pacific Northwest, like Vancouver, for example, where one of us may be sitting in a very tall building (laughs) Um, in one of the areas that you urge at the end of when the earth roars is kind of um, uh, might benefit from the kinds of forward thinking um, that you urge in the case of Japan um, that might also be relevant in this area of pretty um, intense potential seismic activity. So I'll I'll just kind of um, put a plug to all my fellows in the Pacific Northwest area. Um, Read this book, even if you don't think you're interested in Japan, because there are some lessons for those of us who live in um, other areas of seismic activity as well. So thank you so much for spending all this time talking with me. I've already taken an hour of your time, and there's a ton of material across both books that we haven't had a chance to talk about. Is there anything in particular about either book, about their relationship, about anything that comes out of um, their uh, sort of our conversation about them that we didn't have a chance to talk about but that you'd like to point out for listeners? Um, well, as you say, there, there's so much in terms of specific points that uh, 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 this gives a sampling. I think it's a very nice sampling. I really appreciate the way you pulled everything together uh, in, in, in terms of the, the major themes of the books. Um, one of the things, I'll just say one, one point in, in closing. And one of the things that as I was writing and thinking about it, I, I tend to work, you know, I tend, I don't know, Maybe everyone does it this way, but I tend to get my ideas for a book as I'm writing the book and then rewrite it. Uh, And so one of the things that occurred to me is that human beings in the case, here in the case specifically of uh, earthquakes, and especially in Japan, but but anywhere, you know, have this, seem to have this intense desire to impose their sense of order on, on the physical world. You know, so we always talk about earthquakes or floods or whatever being overdue. Or, you know, how many hundred-year floods do we have every year around the world? Or, you know, in the same location, you know, we'll have a hundred-year flood about every, what, five years or so. You know, and, and this idea that, that earthquakes should should properly follow a schedule and that this one is late. or not, that, that one was early, you know, or something like that. Is it like, what the hell do you do? Is the earth you know, paying any attention to this? Um, but but we, 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 so this is part of this, this complacency thing is this idea that, okay, I think we've got it now. Uh, and, and that will often have to do with the fact that just by random chance, there hasn't been an earthquake in 40 years or 50 years. In the case of Japan, there was this period from uh, 1948 to 1995 of very low seismic activity, which, you know, so, and, and, and at the same time, there's all these advances in science, you know, science, science in general. People are going to the moon. You know, there's all sorts of stuff going on. So it's only natural that people tend to think, all right, you know, not necessarily seismologists, but ordinary people. Yeah, I think we have this earthquake stuff under control. The guy in the office, uh, or I'll just say, I won't specify exactly which office, but in an office in my hall uh, where I uh, work, uh, when I just briefly mentioned some of the, what I was writing about, and I mentioned something about earthquake prediction, and he said, oh, yeah, I bet the, the, the scientists must really be good at that by now. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, they're so good at it. They have a zero percent success rate. But, uh, uh, you yeah, know, so, so they're, there's this sort of, I'm just just amazed at so at 
how many how many ways in which this tendency of humans to impose our own sense of order on the earth or on uh, you know other atmospheric phenomena or whatever uh, it comes through in, in so many different ways and it's it's certainly something uh, uh, a psychological tendency that we have that we need to uh, be on guard against although you know, it's still going to be there so I just want to mention that thank you. So maybe for my final question, I'll ask now that the books are out and I should be um, probably for one of my final comments saying that you, you put out two books two years in a row. You're not allowed to put out anymore anytime soon because you'll make the rest of us look really, really bad. But I won't say that. Um, but now that the books are out, what's what's currently inspiring you? Um, what projects are you working on right now? Uh, well, um, I, I'm always I have about four or five things in the hopper where I just throw in random notes. And so, of course, I won't tell you about all four or five things, but the most directly relevant is that it seems that these two books very nicely set up a third book that would be it sort of have the same relationship where it stands on its own, but yet it's interconnected uh, with the other two. And that is a formal systematic history of seismology mm-hmm. in Japan from uh, the, uh, the 17th century to close to the present. And um, I'm thinking of pursuing it at, at two levels. Uh, seismology is you know, among the scientists, uh, as a, the emergence of seismology as a scientific discipline, but also monitoring uh, the, um, the popular understanding of, of seismology. You know, so, so public seismology, I'm not sure what term I'll use, but they have these, these sort of two different levels. Uh, operating in the book because there's there's so much great stuff in uh, the Japanese sources um, on say a newspaper article that summarizes a speech by a seismologist say in 1890 uh, and then translates that into you know sort of terms that ordinary readers uh, can understand with, with takeaway points and, and so forth so there's this constant uh, discourse between the, the, the scientists in Japan who are connected with scientists around the world uh, and that's part of it. And there's also this uh, uh, back and forth between scientists and uh, you know, ordinary people reading newspapers and, and the journalists and others who mediate uh, those kind of connections. So that's what I'm uh, the, the general topic for a third book that will not be out next year, but uh, hopefully in a reasonably near future. So don't worry. <laughs> okay, best of luck with that. Um, I'm really, really delighted to have had the chance to talk with you about these books. I really appreciate your time, and it's been a lot of fun. Thanks very much. Thank you. You've been listening to new books in East Asian Studies. Thanks very much for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Yeah.